as we look at this topic, I'd like us to keep these verses in mind. We covered them previously in, a, in a, another topic under thinking biblically, but Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, says this about the spiritual, the spiritually-minded man or woman. He had just talked about the unsaved in the previous verse. Now he comes to the believer in Christ. He says, he who is spiritual, he who is spiritually-minded is the idea, who thinks spiritual thoughts, who thinks God's thoughts after him. He who is spiritual evaluates all things. You could translate that discerns all things or appraises all things. You take jewelry to uh, an appraiser or a coin or some antique, and they appraise its value. The one who is spiritual appraises the value of all of God's truth and understands it to be valuable and important for them. He who is spiritual appraises, discerns, evaluates all things. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? The answer is no one. We don't know God's mind. We should be instructed by God, not our opinions informing God. Not our opinions causing the meaning of Scripture to change. No matter how difficult the passage is, the subject matter is, it's God's word that should change us, not us changing the meaning of Scripture to fit us. Paul then says, we have the mind of Christ. Every believer in Christ can have the mind of Christ, can think God's thoughts after him because of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And so we want to approach this topic and the passages that we'll look at today with the mind of Christ. We want to think about these things, this very difficult subject matter, in the way God and Christ views these things. We'll be thinking biblically about divorce today and, Lord willing, remarriage and singleness next week. And we're going to just focus in on two key passages today relative to divorce. We're going to find out that, according to Scripture, there are two reasons and two reasons only for divorce. Now, it doesn't mean that these, that divorce is necessary, particularly in the first one. Divorce is just an option, but it's a last option. Scripture is abundantly clear that we are to go to the second mile, that we are to forgive seven times 70. Forgiveness is always the go-to position of the believer in Christ. A spirit of forgiveness, an attitude of forgiveness. Uh, forgiveness, even in the face of pain and heartache and unfaithfulness. All we have to do is think about how God in Christ has forgiven us. God is our example. An evil and unforgiving spirit does not resemble the spirit of God in Christ at all. 
again, it does not mean that there can never be divorce. Scripture clearly teaches that. But it doesn't offer that as the go-to position. It doesn't offer that as that it's a done deal. Forgiveness is always what we look towards. But we'll see that there's passages regarding marital infidelity and passages regarding abandonment. Let's look at marital infidelity first. And of course, it deals with the passage of Scripture that we read together this morning. In Matthew 19, some Pharisees came to Jesus. And why did they come? They came to test him. And we'll understand a little more about that test in just a moment. And they asked him, is it lawful? Is it lawful? There in their mind, when they say lawful, what are they thinking of? It's the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. Is it lawful? And that law is primarily laid down in the last half of Exodus in the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, where the law is repeated 40 years later to the new generation about to enter the promised land. Is it lawful? What does the law of Moses have to say? This is what they're asking him. Is it lawful according to Scripture for a man? And they said a man because in Jewish culture in those days, it would be quite abnormal for a woman to divorce her husband. It really wasn't an option due to the culture and the time in which they lived. So he addresses a man here. Uh, that's what they're asking. Is it lawful for a man? Because that would have been the custom of the day for a man to divorce his wife and not the other way around in Jewish culture. Remember, these are Pharisees. These are Jews coming to Jesus. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Now, what you need to understand here is that at the time that the Lord lived, there were two main schools of thought on this. Two great rabbis. One of them died about when the Lord was 14 or so years old. Uh, the other would die the same year the Lord was put to death. So they overlapped our Lord Jesus Christ with portions of their lives. And one rabbi, Shammai or Shammai, he said you could only divorce your wife for marital unfaithfulness if she committed adultery. But the most favored of the two rabbis, Hillel, he said you could divorce your wife for uncleanness, because that's what's used in Deuteronomy 24, in the Mosaic Law. And he defined uncleanness as if she twirled in the streets and her robe lifted up and showed her ankle like a prostitute would, then you could divorce her because she shamed you in the streets by being happy and twirling and her robe came up. Or if she burned your dinner, you could divorce her. So, obviously, this was the favored teaching. And they came 
to the Lord, and they asked him, What camp do you fall into, Shammai or Hillel? Because if you fall into Shammai's camp, well, you know, you're going to lose uh, popularity there because that's not really the teaching we prefer. And so they said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And the Lord answered and said, now notice, they asked, is it lawful? They were thinking about the law of Moses given at Sinai in Exodus 20, halfway through the book of Exodus, through chapter 40, where different aspects of the law are laid down, and then Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So about two and a half of the five books of Moses. Notice what the Lord does. He doesn't go to Mount Sinai, which was about 3,400 years ago. He goes back to the beginning of creation, millennia before that. He said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, not from the giving of the law at Sinai, thousands of years after, but he who created them from the beginning. He takes them back to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. He made them male and female. See, marriage preceded the law of Moses. Marriage was not just for the Jews, which are descendants of Abraham. Marriage was for all mankind. He goes back to the beginning. When he instituted marriage, that was in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. The fall to sin did not occur until when? Genesis chapter 3. Marriage was instituted by the Lord God. This is God's institution. He who created them. It's not Moses. It's not man. It is God. When he instituted marriage, created Eve from Adam's side, brought them together in union, in marriage, there was no sin. Adam and Eve were going to live forever. In other words, they were going to be married forever. It was intended to be permanent. The fall changed all that. Not only because man will die, and that's the end of marriage, and there is no marriage in heaven, as the Lord would, uh, shortly after this, the Sadducees would come testing him. And he says that there is not going to be marriage in heaven, essentially is what the Lord will teach. Not only because man's life will be limited on this earth, but also because of sin nature, man will end marriage before the end of their life. God had an original tent, intent in marriage, and that was union. He brought them together. He said, and for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. God's original intent in marriage was not division. It was union. It was unity. There was to be a uniting there of the man and the woman. And God is the one who brought them together and a man, descendants of Adam and Eve, would leave their father and mother. Their devotion would no longer be to the father and mother, but primarily to the wife. 
and the two shall become one flesh. This was his original intent. Divorce flies in the face of God's original intent. God's original intent in marriage was that that union was to be inseparable. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God, not man, not the state, what God has joined together, let no man separate. It is God who instituted marriage. It's man who instituted divorce. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Man does not and should not be the entity that decides on marriage. Yes, we have marriage laws, and we need to abide by those. I'm not saying we shouldn't. But man should only recognize what God has done. They shouldn't think they are the authority that has the right to decide what marriage is, what constitutes marriage, how to define marriage. It comes from God. What God has joined together, not man, it is God who has joined together. And when God joins together, no man has the authority to separate. God intends it to be inseparable. But there's an excuse on the Pharisee's mind. And so often, not just in this subject of divorce and remarriage and singleness, not, not only in these areas, but in a lot of areas, professing Christians, as unbelievers, of course, but even Christians can sometimes approach Scripture looking for justification for what they want to do. They have already decided this is what they really want. Now let me find some verse of Scripture that justifies what I want to do. And when you approach Scripture that way, you're approaching it like these Pharisees who, as we're going to see in a moment, completely misinterpreted what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Let us never approach Scripture with a preconceived idea. Let us never approach Scripture with the idea that I'm going to find something to justify what I want to do. That's the wrong way. We'd be like the Pharisees then. They had this excuse on their mind, and so do so many people today. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Now notice, only part of this verse is in quotes, give her a certificate of divorce and send her away. Do you know why? Because that, those are the words that are actually in Deuteronomy 24. There is no command in Deuteronomy 24. What Deuteronomy 24 says in the Hebrew is, if a man, if a man finds some uncleanness in his wife, if, not a man should divorce his wife if he finds. There was no command there. It was just a statement of possibility. 
God knowing the evil heart of man. Remember before the flood, the Lord saw that the thoughts and intentions of man's heart was only evil continually. The Lord knows our heart. He told Samuel, God does not look on the outward appearance, but he looks upon the heart. God knew what man would do, even having received the law, and he said, if a man, or you could also translate the Hebrew, when a man, but there is no command there. It just says, if a man finds an uncleanness, he should write her. The command is that he should write. He just shouldn't send her out of the house. He should write a certificate of divorce. That is the command that he must write one, not that he must divorce her. He didn't command the divorce. He just said that if you're going to do this, you must do it in this way. He limited them. Otherwise, there would be no certificate of divorce. As far as everyone would be concerned, she'd still be married to that man. So they had this excuse, and they misinterpreted what the Lord wrote, what the Lord God instructed Moses to write in Deuteronomy chapter 24. God allows what he doesn't approve of. We all know this. Does God love sin? Does God like sin? No, of course not. There's no Bible-believing Christian who would ever make that statement that God is okay with sin. That flies in the face of Scripture. Therefore, you are to be holy as I am holy. That's what the Lord said. In, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, therefore, you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. God doesn't approve of sin, yet he allowed sin in Genesis 3 to enter his creation. God often allows what he does not approve of. And so he tells them why God, why then did Moses command us to write a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of heart, because of your hardness of heart. This is why. There is often divorce because of hardness of heart, either on the part of the husband or the wife or both. Divorce always involves a hard heart on the part of at least one person, not necessarily on the part of both. So someone in a divorce has hardness of heart. The Lord himself said it. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wife. See, he didn't command. He allowed it. He permitted it because of hardness of heart. That's all. The Lord never commands divorce for marital infidelity because that's what this passage is going to deal with. We'll see it in just a moment in verse 9. It is permitted but it is not commanded. But from the beginning, he says, it has not been that way. He goes back again to God's original intent in marriage with Adam and Eve, that they would live forever, they would be married forever. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. But then the Lord does give this exception. 
And we're not going to go into all the interpretive gymnastics that some people do. It's, it's way too much for a Sunday message. I don't know that I would even want to go through all the different ideas that people have to get away from the plain meaning of this, uh, even in a Bible study. I don't know that it would be profitable. But the Lord does give an exception. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. He gives this exception where it is permissible to divorce, but it's not commanded that you must divorce. It's an exception that is permissible, that in the case of marital infidelity, marital unfaithfulness, adultery, that divorce is permitted. But again, that is not the Christian's go-to position. Forgiveness should always be the Christian's go-to forgiveness. What sin is there that the Lord God will not forgive you? There was the unpardonable sin when the Lord lived, but that no longer applies because the Lord's not alive performing miracles for our very eyes to see. We don't see him in person performing miracles. That's part of the unpardonable sin. That's the only sin that won't be forgiven. So what sin is there that the Lord will not forgive you or I? Is there any sin that the Lord won't forgive? If the Lord will forgive any of your sins, then should we not also be able to forgive sin against us as well? So if there is no sin that the Lord himself, no sin that you've committed that the Lord will not forgive you of, why should we feel that there is one or two or three or four sins or this person or that person that we won't forgive? Our forgiveness is to be like the Lord's. We are to forgive, Jesus taught, as our Father in heaven forgave us. He forgave us completely. He forgave us totally. That ought to at least be the desire of our heart regarding divorce and any pain and suffering that another person has caused us. Any injury they have done to us, we should be able to forgive because we have done incalculable, infinite injury to the Lord God by our sin. But there is this exception. It is a legitimate exception, and you have to go through quite a bit of interpretive gymnastics to try and make this mean what the plain words of, other than what the plain words of Scripture indicate that it means. What the Lord is trying to show is that marriage is serious. Marriage is not to be taken lightly. The disciples well-steeped, well-versed in the teachings of Shammai and Hillel. They are shocked by what the Lord said. The disciples said, since the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. 
that it was not going to be easy to divorce a wife. Marriage is very serious. They said it correctly. Marriage is serious. Sometimes it's better not to marry. If this was all that was involved with marriage, then yes, it is better not to marry. And the Lord is going to affirm the seriousness of marriage and the correctness of the disciples' understanding that, you know, if this is the way it is, we have to think whether or not it is better to marry or not to marry. It's a difficult subject, the Lord is going to say, before he affirms their statement that, you know, it's so serious that maybe it's better not to marry. He said, not all men can accept this statement. See, the Lord right there said, what he's teaching on here, what he told the Pharisees, what he's about to tell the disciples in the very next verse is difficult. And not everyone can accept this statement. It's too much. They don't want to hear it. No, I don't want to hear it. I'm going to do what I want to do. I, I, I don't want this man to rule over me. I don't want to hear these words. Not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. And who are those, at the very least, to whom this statement is given? You remember the verses from 1 Corinthians? The spiritual man appraises and evaluates all things. Anyone who's a spiritual believer, a spiritually minded individual who has the spirit of God dwelling in them, you are a person who can accept this statement, who can accept the teaching of the Lord because you have the spirit of God. We have the mind of Christ. And so we should be able to accept, receive, and appreciate what the Lord says regarding marriage and particularly, in this case, divorce. It's a difficult subject. Not everyone can accept it. But if you are a believer in Christ, you can accept it. The Holy Spirit who indwells you will enable you to do that. Isn't that fantastic? The Holy Spirit can give you appreciation of God's truth, even some of the most difficult truths of Scripture. God can open your heart and cause you to embrace them and love his truth. I think every single one of us has either been affected by the heartbreak and tragedy of divorce or we know someone who has. And when you put faces on situations like this, your heart breaks for those individuals who have suffered through the heartbreak and tragedy of divorce. Your heart breaks for them. You fall to your knees and you pray for them. And you're able to accept this teaching when you are thinking God's thoughts after him, when you have the mind of Christ and you're exercising the mind of Christ on this subject. But it is difficult. If you find it difficult this morning, pray to the Lord God about it. 
pray to him that you want to have his mind and you want to be instructed by him and to come to embrace the truths of Scripture. The Lord is going to tell them that singleness is preferable to divorce. He says in the very next verse, after saying there's some, uh, only some can accept this statement, he says there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. He who is able to accept this, the same thing that he said before, there's only some who can accept it. He who is able to accept it, let him accept this statement. He's validating what the disciples said. If the way of a man with a woman is this, it's better not to marry. And he's saying, yes, marriage is very serious. And if you're not entering it with the frame of mind of how serious it is, that it is an inseparable union, if you're not going in with that mindset, if you're going in with the mindset, oh, that this is a trial, this is an experiment, and if it doesn't work out, well, divorce is my way out. No, it is serious. Singleness is preferable to divorce. There are even those who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. Those who have chosen to remain single for the sake of the kingdom of God. Now, not everyone's able to accept it. We'll find a little more about that uh, when we talk about singleness, Lord willing, next week. But singleness is preferable to divorce. If you're entering into a marriage or you know someone who is, that they don't see the permanence of marriage, then singleness is actually preferable for them rather than to end up married and then divorced. Keep in mind, though, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. God forgives divorce. It's never to be taken lightly, just like we're not to take any sin lightly, but divorce is not the unpardonable sin. There's some people who are so strict, they view divorce as if it's an unpardonable sin. God can never use that person again. God has no plan for the rest of that person's life to serve him and to bring him glory. That's not the case at all. God will forgive divorce when it's repented of. But singleness is definitely preferable to divorce. Our Lord's teaching, someone might be thinking, well, this, this, uh, that was before his death and resurrection. That was before the church began in Acts chapter 2. That, he was addressing the law of Moses. No, it's, this is the consistent teaching of the New Testament. Writing to the Corinthian church, Paul, the apostle of the Lord, said this in 1 Corinthians 7. The wife should not leave her husband. There's a command there. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. What our Lord said didn't just apply to the Jews before the cross. It's the same teaching that we have to the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's look at the second reason, and this one's a little easier 
in most respects to understand. Abandonment. The first thing we need to understand is Paul is going to lay out a principle of consent. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12, if any brother, this is a believer in Christ now, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, so this is a mixed marriage, believer and unbeliever. It's not talking about two unbelievers. It's not talking about two professing believers. If any man has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, she agrees to live with him, he must not divorce her because she's not a believer. That's not permitted. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he agrees or consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. Divorce was more common outside of Israel amongst the Greeks and the Romans throughout the Roman Empire. And women would divorce their husband, a little different than with the Jewish believers. So there's a principle of consent. If your spouse, as a believer in Christ, whether you're man or woman, if your spouse wants to remain married to you, you don't have an excuse to divorce her. There's this principle of consent. The second principle he lays out is the principle of peace. If an unbelieving one leaves, if the unbelieving wife or the unbelieving husband leaves, he says, let him leave. The brother or sister. See, it doesn't matter whether it's the believing husband or the believing wife. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. So if the unbelieving spouse leaves, that's okay. Let them leave. You don't have to fight that. You don't have to put all the energy and time into trying to keep that person as your spouse. Behind the scenes here is another teaching of Scripture that a marriage should not be an unequal yoke. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6, uh, verse 14, do not be unequally yoked, believer with unbeliever. He says, what fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ and the devil? Unions need to have the same spirit. In order to have a marriage union, in its best sense, it's best that they both be believers. It doesn't mean that the believer and the unbeliever cannot have a successful marriage, but they're not pulling completely in the same direction. Clearly, a believer should never enter into marriage with an unbeliever, according to 2 Corinthians 6, 14. But here, there already is a marriage. Someone can't use the fact that their spouse is unsaved as an excuse to divorce. But if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. You're not under bondage in that case. Why? Because God has called you to peace. Be at peace with them. Don't be at war with them. And let them leave. That's the principle of peace. If they abandon the marriage then let them leave. Here Paul has in mind geographical abandonment. 
They move out of the house. But what is the spirit of such abandonment? That spirit is selfishness. It's just a focus on self and what they want. There is no love for the spouse that they abandon. I'd like to suggest to you this morning that this is one example of abandonment. I personally believe that the spirit of abandonment can be present even if one individual does not leave the home. When someone consistently and persistently withdraws from the marriage, even if they remained under that roof, but it's more like roommates, and you've tried everything that you can, time after time, months, even years, you've gone the second mile, you've forgiven seven times 70, but it's very, very clear that other person really doesn't want to be married to you. They have withdrawn. They, they are doing whatever they can to make your life miserable, and you've put up with it for a long, long time. You've exercised a forgiving spirit over and over and over again, day in and day out, then I think that may open the door to abandonment. Why haven't they moved out? Oh, maybe they can't afford to. Maybe they like the home and they're just hoping you'll move out. You'll geographically abandon the marriage. I don't know, but I think the definition of ab abandonment needs to be defined in terms of the spirit of abandonment. What takes place when someone geographically abandons? And that's a spirit of selfishness. I'm going to do what I want to do. I could care less about this other person. I, I think that could actually take place without a geographical abandonment. It's an abandonment of heart. Selfishness characterizes that. The reason that he gives for the principle of peace has to do with spiritual matters. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Here he's looking at the very best of all possible reasons for not wanting that unbelieving spouse to depart because I want to influence them for salvation. I want to see them get saved. This is the very best reason not a selfish reason. What am I going to do? How am I going to pay the mortgage? I'm going to feel so lonely. It's not a selfish reason. It's looking at the other person's eternal spiritual good. If God has called us to peace, even in the very best reason, salvation of the unsaved spouse, and Scripture says, let them leave. It doesn't matter that they're unsaved. It doesn't matter that you're not going to have that daily positive influence on them. Let them leave. If in the best reason Scripture says you should let them leave, then any other reason is less than that. The reason is that the spiritual always outweighs the temporal. 
The eternal and the spiritual outweighs the temporal and the physical. This is the reason for the principle of peace, that the spiritual should outweigh even the family, even the marriage union. In other areas, the same principle should extend to other areas of our life. Family and marriage never takes priority over the spiritual. Having a husband or a wife should never be an excuse to never serving the Lord. The spiritual takes precedence. It takes priority. There is the primacy of the spiritual over the marital union. We can't use marriage as an excuse for not serving and worshiping God and Christ. In conclusion, what are we thinking biblically about divorce? Have, have we been thinking God's thoughts after him, that marriage is serious, and that divorce, in most cases, other than for those exceptions, two exceptions listed in Scripture, that divorce is a sin, a sin that the Lord can forgive and will forgive if it's repented of in a biblical fashion. Today, I'd like to ask you, would you begin to trust that God knows what he is doing in your marriage, even to a person who's not showing to you the same love that you show to them? Will you begin to trust that God knows what he is doing in your marriage or in your single life? We'll focus more on that next week, Lord willing. And will you begin to look how God wants to make you more holy in marriage or singleness? Because that is the goal. When, when, when young people at Grace Gospel Church have gotten married and I've been part of their marriage ceremony, I always tell them, and in our young married coupled marriage builders group, we tell the young couples, the purpose of marriage is not primarily your happiness. It's your holiness. That is the primary focus of all that we do. We make it our ambition to be pleasing to him, the scripture says. So the primary function of marriage is not your happiness, not my happiness. It's my holiness. It's your holiness. God wants to make us more holy in marriage. That's the way to view marital difficulty. How is the Lord going to make me more holy through this trial with my spouse? And that's what we talk to the Lord about. That's what we want to focus on. And so will you begin to look for, ask God to show you how he wants to make you more holy in marriage or in singleness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you for your word. Indeed, dear God, this is a, a, a difficult subject, and we thank you, Lord, that your word does not shy away from difficult subjects. And Lord, we ask that you would help us in our marriages to bring you glory, that you would help each and every one of us, married or single, to have a heart 
that forgives those who sin against us. Dear God, we confess you that we sometimes do have an unforgiving spirit, and we beseech you, O Lord, that you would create in us by the power of your Holy Spirit a forgiving heart, a heart that looks like yours, a heart that is ready to forgive any sin against us the way you have forgiven our sins against you. Would you be pleased to do this, dear God? Would you be pleased to bring yourself glory in this way by making us a forgiving people? We ask all this for your name's sake. Amen.